Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne and I'm so glad you could listen in. Uh, some of you, some of y'all are listening on the podcast. Some are listening on the radio show. Others of you are tuning in on different platforms. And I've been doing a series about the sacredness of life. Uh, as you may know, my newest book is called Rethinking Life. Uh, the subtitles: Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. And today, I want to think a little bit about this idea that. Every person bears the image of God. We're, we're going to dig deep on this, but you know, let me just start by saying, growing up in the South, we had a saying that you're the spitting image of someone, right? People say, I heard a lot, you're the spitting image of your dad. And it meant that you're more than ju- you don't just look like them, but you remind people of them. You have, you know, the same mannerisms, the same characteristics, personality. You know, you laugh or smile or walk like them. And I later heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but that idea, I don't even know if you've ever heard. It's a pretty Southern saying, you're the spinning image of someone, but that it, it was shorthand for spirit and image. And that's how we got the, the spitting image. So, I'm not a hundred percent sure on you know fact check uh, on on the origin of the southern phrase spitting image, but I am convinced of this that it gives us a little insight on what it means to be made in the image of God. That we we, we might say that human beings are the spitting image of God. We're to remind the world of God. We're able at our best to um, love like God to create like God, to to act like God, to show people what God's love is like in the world. Uh, I once heard, I think it was Frederick Buechner say um, that saints, all that a saint is, is simply someone uh, that leaves off the fragrance of heaven on earth. In fact, they said it's, a saint is when God drops an, a handkerchief to earth to, to show the smell of heaven. Um, so someone like Mother Teresa, they they leave off the scent and the fragrance of heaven, of God's love in the world. Um, their, their lives remind us of, of Jesus. And, and, and yet I think of, um, you know, in this world, um, we're, we're very into uh, our own image, you know. <laughs> You got so many selfies and good heavens, all the social media. We're posting images of us drinking coffee and watching the sunset. And we, we, um, you know, the Amish, they, they think every, I heard someone say that every photograph we take, um, takes a part of our soul. (laughs) Hopefully they're wrong about that, but you know, we're very into getting our image out there. And, um, uh, one of the things that, uh, is, is really an interesting contrast uh, when you look at the the ancient world is 
kings and emperors in the ancient world were um, obsessed with their image, right? Putting their image, it was engraved on statues, buildings, um, war machines. Uh, They branded it on documents and, of course, on coins. And, And this is where I think it gets interesting. You know, the Caesars would put their images on coins and um, you know, it was, it was a little bit more than just a narcissism complex, but it was about marking their turf and expanding their territory. And historians could w- w- would say that you could tell how far the power of a particular emperor reached by tracking the locations of where the coins with their image were found. So literally architects kind of use that as an indicator of how far someone's empire expanded, how how far their influence went. The the coins were sort of a trail of crumbs to the people who held power. Well, maybe you can kind of see where this is going that God's image is too glorious to put on a coin or a statue. So are you ready for this? God put God's divine image on us. God chose for us to be the image bearers, right? The, we're the living currency of God. Wherever human beings are, uh, we see a little glimpse of God's love. In fact, in the uh, New Testament, it says, who has seen God? But if we love one another, uh, God can be seen and evidence and manifest among us that we we look into the eyes of another person and we can see the image of God. I mean, that's something, right? So Caesar, um, one of my friends, Arthur Waskow, who's a great rabbi here in Philadelphia, he's actually known for his rainbow yarmulke that he often wears, but he's a beautiful, uh, wise rabbi. And he does a lot of work on this, that Caesar and all of his coins wanted to get his image out there, but God's image is stamped on human beings. Caesar wanted to be seen, but not known. And God wants to be known, but cannot be seen. At least the God in the Hebrew scripture, right, is one that appears to Moses in a burning bush or to Elijah in a gentle whisper to Abraham in the guise of three strangers. And so there's this God that is too powerful for us to stare in the face. Um, But God wants to be seen and keeps appearing in different ways and then ultimately ends up, you know, putting God's through the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. So now God's evident all over the world. And so we're the coins of God. So wherever people is, that's how far God's kingdom goes. We're the coins, right, that care that that show that God is everywhere. Maybe it's a part of why we're um, called to reproduce and uh, like the, the the locusts, as scripture says, to, you know, to continue to bring God's image in the lives of human beings. But there is one interesting place in the Hebrew scripture where uh, God sends an angel to a woman named Hagar. Now, Hagar was Abraham's mistress. Uh, whom Abraham had banished into the desert with her son Ishmael. This is, that's the backstory here, right? But Hagar names God, right? God appears to Hagar and God names, or Hagar names God. You ready for this? As the one who sees me. It's in Genesis 16. The one who sees me. 
That's what she names God. You are the one who sees me. That idea that there is a God that that sees us, that knows us, that longs to be known by us. I mean, this is this is who God is. God, God didn't want to keep God's love uh, just in heaven, but spills it out into the earth and creates us. So we now are God's sanctuary, right? God, as uh, the book of Acts says, that God doesn't dwell in temples made by hands, but we are the sanctuaries, the temple uh, in which God dwells. I mean, this is good. This is good stuff, y'all. Is not in the not in the buildings, but in the bodies, and that's not just a reason to eat less cholesterol, but it's a a way of showing uh, reverence, right, to care for ourselves, but also reverence to every person that we meet, that we are looking to their eyes, and we are peering into the holy of holies. So it should cause each other, cause us to treat each other with love and respect if we really believe that every person is um, carrying God's image. Uh, there's there's one other little scripture that I think is beautiful in the New Testament. Um, so there's a point where the, the tax collectors come to Jesus, and there's a couple of different t- tellings of this story. But uh, as it were, they, they bring a coin to Jesus. And it's interesting that they that they Jesus didn't have a coin, but he, he has them bring him a coin because in Jewish culture, even touching the image of Caesar um, by touching Caesar's coins would be seen as um, uh, an impure thing to do. And so they didn't want to even defile themselves by touching money. And ooh. <laughs> so Jesus probably, may not have even had a coin, but um, they say to Jesus, do you pay your your taxes? These are what the tax collectors say, right? And Jesus asked for the coin and says, whose image is on it? And they reply, Caesar's. And then Jesus says, give back to Caesar whatever is Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, in one version of the story, it's really interesting because um, Jesus tells Peter to go catch a fish and pull the coin out of the fish's mouth. So this is like kind of bizarre, but absolutely spectacular. A little bit of circus uh, thing, you know, a little um, holy magic trick going on here or something, pulling the, fit, the, the, the coin out of the fish's mouth. But it's as if Jesus is saying, Caesar can have his coin. I made the fish. It's sort of reclaiming the power that, you know, Caesar can print coins that are lifeless and they have his image on them he can have his coins but life is sacred human beings especially are made in the image of god and so give to caesar what caesar's is a way of saying um that's the stuff of earth you know but the other this life this is even even caesar is made in the image of god he's not god even though he may think he is. But Caesar is made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. It's kind of saying, Caesar can have his his coin, but I made the fish. And uh, Arthur Waskow says, maybe even uh, uh, there was a kid nearby. And uh, uh, Jesus said, whose image is on this coin? You sort of wonder... um, 
what it would be like if we really believed that every single person carries the image of God. And it also is true that Dorothy Day, you know, when she was she was a tax resistor because of how much money goes to militarism and war and destroys human life. And uh, she had a great line about taxes where uh, she said, once we've given to God what's God's, there's not much left for Caesar. <laughs> so this idea, though, that all of the coins were exactly the same, right? So Caesar's coins, I mean, just, you know, stamped out, boom, 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 boom. They all look the same. And yet think about it. Human beings are as wildly diverse as God is. Uh, No DNA is the same. No fingerprints the same. No coin is the same. Human nature is diverse by design. It bears the image of God. Come on, right? So like sameness is the way of empire. It's the way of capitalism. Diversity is the mark of the Spirit of God. I can remember uh, spending some time with my buddy Claudio Oliver. He's been on this show, you know, before. He's a he's this wild theologian um, and um, veterinarian. Um, he's he's kind of got this scientific side of him, but also this theological side. And I was down in Brazil hanging out with him, and he took me to their uh, the, the, this place where they had all their chickens. And he starts telling me how many kinds of chickens are there, and and just like Bubba in Forrest Gump, you know, I start rattling off the kinds of you know, he starts going through the shrimps, but I start going through the chickens. I'm like, well, there's fried chicken barbecue chicken, masala chicken, you know, chicken kebabs, uh, teriyaki chicken. And Claudio's like, no, you know, no, no, you know, like uh, how many actual types of chickens are there? And he tells me there's some 400 or something, right? And he goes through like, and he tells me there's like 40,000 different kinds of rice and all of this diversity that's just divinely built into creation itself. So Claudio starts saying, Monoculture is diabolical and diversity is divine. That's a good line. Monoculture is diabolical and diversity is divine. So you think back to the story. There's this ancient story, right, of the Tower of Babel. And it's it's in Genesis 11. So one of the things that happens is that there is this uniformity to the human kind of human population. Everybody's one. They're speaking one language. They're very impressed by themselves. And this is early on, Genesis 11. And they build the Tower of Babel, thinking, you know, very impressed with themselves, thinking that they can bridge the heavens and the earth. But this is what it says. As people are building the Tower of Babel, God topples the tower, right? And scatters the people. And this is where it's awesome. So that people began to speak different languages. So diversity is created. Culture is created. And the monoculture of the Tower of Babel is now, it's where we get the the, the word um, Babylon was also from here, right? This and, and, um, uh, but, but this Tower of Babel was the first human project where we really were impressed by ourselves. We think we're going to build our way to heaven and God scatters it. But then you get all of the languages. And then this is interesting. Fast forward 
to Pentecost, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And it's interesting to see what happens when the Holy Spirit falls on these early Christians, the young church in the upper room in the book of Acts. And and the writer of Acts goes to great lengths, you know, to to really uh, name all of the diversity. So, you know, it goes through Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Cretans, Arabs. They're residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome. It goes through all these, right? Jews, Gentiles, all kinds of people. They're all in their diversity there. And the Holy Spirit speaks on them. And they began to speak in other tongues, it says. Um, and this is what, you know, sometimes we... We, we kind of focus on the fire of Pentecost and the tongues of fire. But what's incredible is that it says, as the gospel was proclaimed, each one of them heard it in their own language. So despite all of their diversity, they're still one in heart and mind, it says, and they begin to share their possessions, but they're all hearing the gospel in their own language. Come on, somebody. There's a whole sermon in here that uh, God is communicating to us in our own diversity. In fact, I one of my um, one of the, my heroes growing up when I was a teenager was a woman who was both blind and deaf. I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine, especially. I mean, this is you know. 25, 30 years ago, like we didn't have a lot of the modern, you know, the technologies that we have now. So she was blind and deaf. And she came to know God because she got this vision of hands that were coming from heaven. And you, you got to uh, uh, visualize that she touched hands in sign language. She's touching them because she's blind in order to communicate. So she's feeling language. And so these hands come down from heaven and they, in sign language that she's touching and feeling, they say, come to me. I need you and I love you. That was God communicating to this woman who was blind and deaf that I want you to know my love. So I think of the unif- the, the unity that happened at Pentecost. One of the things that's so powerful is how diverse it was, that it's a reminder as you think about the juxtaposition of the Tower of Babel and Pentecost. It's about this new unity Pentecost is of that comes not from uniformity, but it's the unity that comes in the context of diversity. In fact, the more diverse we are, the more powerful it is to be united. Oneness, though, is not sameness. It's not that we're all the same. And at Red Letter Christians, we like to say that uh, we're, we're all about harmonizing, but not homogenizing. It's why the unity of an orchestra comes from all these different instruments singing the same song, playing the same song, harmonizing together. Uh, it's not a very beautiful orchestra if it's all French horns. So we want that that diversity and 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 you know, as you think of um, this kingdom of God vision, this vision of being a family of God, unity happens powerfully in diversity. Unity is not uniformity. Um, Oneness is not sameness. So monoculture is not what we're going for, but the diversity is divine. It's also why in our community, sometimes we say, if it's all white, something's not quite right. 
we want to reflect that diversity. You know, that Dr. King, Martin Luther King grieved that one of the most segregated hours in the world is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when the church gathers for worship. We end up segregating into homogenous clusters, these little silos of sameness. And yet God wants us to build unity in the context of diversity. So y'all, we got to build community that reflects the diversity of God's creation. I was just with a pastor that said, uh, one of the easiest things to do is to build a church where everybody looks like you, talks like you, votes like you, and eats like you. But we are to do things differently. We're to build a community that is as diverse and wild and spectacular as God is. So that's what it's about, y'all. It's what it's about. You know, as I think about this idea that the image of God is in every person, I want to just close with, you know, one last story. When I was in India, one of the most powerful places I went, I worked with Mother Teresa and the the, the sisters in Calcutta. But one of my, my most distinct memories is um, visiting this community of folks who had leprosy. And so this was a community that Mother Teresa started. And at the time in India, if you had leprosy, or certain skin diseases, you were outcast. I mean, it was literally the caste system. And so you um, couldn't go in stores and restaurants and shops. I mean, it, it, you know, I kind of remember hearing in Bible classes about folks who had leprosy that had to ring a bell, you know, and folks would clear out of the way. I mean, it, they were the untouchables. And so Mother Teresa knew that these folks who had leprosy had lived a very difficult lives, uh, and yet they are made in the image of God. And so she created a village with um, hundreds of folks who had leprosy. It was called Gandhiji Primnivas. That was the name of the village. And it it, it actually means Gandhi's new life. And so it was this vision that they were going to build a new society in the shell of the old one. So literally, um, she got this land donated um, that was right along the train tracks. And some of the folks who lived there, I, I, so I got to go spend time there. I, I lived there for, um, I think it was a couple of weeks and just, I got to know them and uh, volunteer with them. Uh, and um, one of the things that they told me is when people arrive there, they often don't even have the words. They don't know the words. Thank you. Cause there's never a time that they've needed to express gratitude. Unbelievable, right? That they, they didn't even have the words thank you or know the idea of gratitude. And so they're creating this new society. And I mean, it was amazing. They made their own clothes. They grew, they, they ran their own school. They grew their own cotton and spun their own cloth and all the saris, the blue and white outfits, the traditional Indian outfits that the sisters wear, they were made in this, in this colony. Um, they made the blankets that were in all the homes that mother Teresa ran. Uh, they, they, they had a clinic. Actually, they they had a wood shop where they would make prosthetic arms and legs for folks because there was a lot of amputation that happened with the disease. But they also had a clinic. And this is where I, I spent some time. So my job when I got there was to roll cotton balls. And they put this huge pile of cotton. Um, and, and my job was to roll cotton balls as they treated each other. 
And then, you know, one day, uh, one of the, the doctors, all the doctors had leprosy and they had been treated. So it was the wounded healer, right? It's folks that had been treated that were now treating others. But one of the guys had to leave early. And so he said to me, hey, you've been watching this. I need you to take over. There's a big line of people that were waiting to, to get treated. And I've been watching day after day. So I, I knew a little bit of what to do, but I felt really, you know, way out of my element. And I sit down and I look into this man's eyes, this elderly gentleman whose arm is just absolutely taken over by the disease. It almost looks like a like a battery acid or something that's been eating away at it. And the way that you treat it is by cutting it back until you can feel again. Um, in fact, you, the way that they would diagnose it was by waving a feather over parts of your skin to see if you still had um, uh, the ability to feel and and so I'm cutting, you know, away at it and I'm cleaning his arm. And as I bandage it up, I look into his eyes and he, he says this powerful word, namaste. It's a word that, you know, some of you that have done yoga, you've heard it, you know, <laughs> but it's a word that is so deep that one of the guys sitting next to me said, do you know what that means? And I said, I, I hear it and I, I know it all the time. It's a very sacred greeting. And he said, yeah, but the, the, it's hard to translate it into English because we there, there's there's almost not a way to say it that captures the depth of it. But he said the best translation would be the Holy One in me sees and honors the Holy One in you. What an amazing word, right? That the Holy One in me honors the Holy One in you. And for a moment I thought, of that scripture that says, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. And I looked into the eyes of this man in India, and I felt like I wasn't just looking into the eyes of some poor leper in Calcutta, but I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. And I thought for a moment, what if he doesn't just see some you know, privileged white kid from America, but what if he's able to see a little bit of God's love in me? And I want to say that uh, I kind of got lost in that guy's eyes as I felt like I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. And there's no clearer glimpse than we can get of God than looking into the face of another human being, a child or maybe someone that's been outcast. Mother Teresa says, in the poor, we can see Jesus in his most distressing disguises. So I want to say to you, you know, as we think about the sacredness, the image of God in every person, faith, the Christian faith is not just about having new ideas, but it's about having new eyes, seeing the image of God in every person. So let's look at people and say, namaste. I see the Holy One in you. I see God, God's image in you. May it be so. Thanks for listening, y'all. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. 
You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.